Last week, I was greatly moved by Thomas's powerful reminder of Jesus' crucifixion. What a day that was, filled with trauma and torture. At noon, darkness fell over the land. That enormous curtain in the temple tore from top to bottom. Jesus committed his spirit to God and breathed his last. The Roman centurion confessed, surely <clears throat> this man was the son of God, while faithful women who followed uh, watched these horrors take place. Our reading today, of course, was in Mark chapter 15, and it tells the story as Mark records what happened next along the path of Jesus' life here on earth. While it's common to stress the death and resurrection of Jesus, a lot less attention is generally paid to the matter of the Lord's burial. We could well ask, why was Jesus' burial important? Well, firstly, all four of the gospel writers recorded it, which emphasizes its importance. While our reading was from Mark, the other writers give us even more detail from their own viewpoint or perspective. Second, the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, I've passed on to you what was most important, and that had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. I fairly could have added, just as the scripture said, after he was buried, because I believe that the burial of Jesus was as orchestrated by God as was the, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Yes, I know the Jewish leaders thought they had organized it all, but how wrong they were. And thirdly, it proved beyond any doubt that Jesus was dead. This does away with the fanciful ideas that men have created sometime later that he must have fainted and then revived in the coolness of the tomb and escaped. If you can believe that one, you can believe anything. He was dead. And even Pilate was shocked to hear that he was dead so soon. Typically, crucifixion was a long, agonizing death, yet Jesus died in a matter of hours. So Pilate called for eyewitnesses, and the Roman centurion was called. And he knew if a man was dead or not. He'd seen so many crucifixions that he couldn't be uncertain about such a fact. But why does this burial matter so much? Because only a Jesus who has died saves. Only a dead and buried Jesus experienced the full wrath of God against our sin. Only a dead and buried Jesus can resurrect. And if he wasn't dead and buried, the resurrection wouldn't have happened. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then as Paul the Apostle said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Then again, Jesus' burial was a fulfillment of ancient biblical prophecy. From a strictly human viewpoint, the burial of Jesus' body was an unusual procedure. It was the Roman practice to leave a body upon the cross until it decomposed. On the other hand, it was the custom of the Jews that anyone sentenced to death by the Sanhedrin was to be left in a place far outside the city of Jerusalem in an area which the council assigned for the burial of executed criminals. But God was not going to let that happen to his son. About a thousand years before Jesus was born, David wrote a number of what we call now messianic psalms, psalms that talk about the coming Messiah. And in Psalm 16, he made this prophetic statement in which he said, For you will not leave my soul among the dead, or allow your body 
your Holy One to rot in the grave. Way back then, God decreed that Jesus' body was never going to be left out to decay, especially way outside the city where there was no one to witness his resurrection. And another prophecy was made about 700 years before Jesus was born. In Isaiah, he was said to be assigned a gray with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, neither was deceit in, he mouth, in his mouth. Well, he certainly did, um, died in the middle of criminals, but how was he, who only owned the clothes that he wore and had nowhere to place his head, going to be with the rich in his death? Don't worry. God had it all planned. After the tragedy of Jesus' death, the hero of the hour was Joseph of Arimathea, who had courageously gone to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and for some unknown reason, Pilate agreed and said he could take it. So accompanied by his fellow Sanhedrin member, Nicodemus, he took charge from the heartbroken group gathered around the cross. It was Friday afternoon, the preparation day for the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was also, the, this particular Sabbath was the celebration of Passover. And the Jews had very strict laws about the Sabbath. Nothing regarding the burial could be left until the next day. And the, Jesus died about 3 p.m. in the afternoon and the Sabbath started at 6 p.m. So there was a frantic rush to have his body taken down from the cross and buried before the Sabbath arrived. Jesus, John tells us that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. He made preparation for the burial for purchasing the required linen to wrap the body together with a large volume of spices that were required. And he was noted in the Bible as a rich man. And according to Matthew, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, that he, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Tombs like this, apparently, were very expensive. And it was quite a sacrifice for Joseph to give his tomb away. He didn't know it. But he didn't have worried. Jesus only needed it for a couple of days. Poof, no problem. However, while the burial was complete, God's plan for the rescue of the human race was not dead and buried, although the Jewish authorities didn't know it at that time. Just, I thought I'd must have got my pages mixed up. What have I done? I have missed a page and it is not here. Now that's a strange thing to happen. There it is, all is not lost. You know, I love this thought. We know that John's Gospel says that the tomb was in a nearby garden. And Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator of many, many years ago, said this. In the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power. And now in a garden they are conquered, disarmed and triumphed over. In a garden, Christ began his passion. And from a garden, he would rise and begin his exaltation. I like that. I think that's good. Have you ever thought of what cost Joseph paid to do what he did? 
He wouldn't have known that the word would spread like wildfire, that he was now a disciple of Jesus. It was going to bury the very one the Sanhedrin hated. He would have lost his reputation, lost his social standing and his status as a Sanhedrin member. He may have even been ejected from the Sanhedrin. The price was high and something very marvellous, he was doing this for someone he knew was dead. That's a remarkable commitment. He was drawn by his love for Jesus to do this for him. The one who had been so desecrated and dishonoured, even at the loss of all his own standing in life. And it makes me wonder whether we would be willing and courageous enough to make such a stand if it affected our life to that extent. Joseph was not able to serve Jesus in many ways because of his position, but he did serve him in ways that he could and no one else could. It wasn't possible for Peter, James and John and the women who followed to provide a tomb for, the, for Jesus, but Joseph could and Joseph did. When Paul over here was talking to the kids a few weeks ago about the poor widow who gave all she had, I noted that he said she did what she could. I wonder if there's something that you could do for Jesus that no one else can. And are you doing what you could do or are able to do to serve the Lord? There's another prophecy that Jesus himself made regarding his death and it's there recorded in Matthew. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is something the sceptics down the ages have loved because Friday night, Sunday morning, that's not three days. The Bible is wrong, absolutely wrong. This apparently difficulty is not insurmountable. We live in the West in the 21st century and we need to step back and recognise that the Jews of the first century counted days in a different manner to we, what we do today. Of course, we know that digital clocks hadn't been, couldn't been created then, but more than that, according to the Jews' understanding of days at that time, part of a day counted as a full day. We don't mark time like that. If we were at someone doing something for three days, we automatically think of three 24-hour days. But once we understand how Jesus and the Jewish people of that, of that time understood and counted days, the contradiction vanishes. Jesus' death at 3 p.m. and the rest of Friday counted as one day to the Jews. His entombment all day Saturday counted as a second day. And his resurrection on Sunday morning counted as a third day. Therefore, Jesus' prophecy and the biblical facts of his burial are not at odds but simply reflect the common way the Jews understood days in the first century. And there are other Bible stories, such as Esther, that speak of Jewish days in a similar way. So the burial was complete. However, God's plan for the rescue of the human race was not dead and buried, although the Jewish authorities didn't know that at the time. Mark's record of what was read to us before of what happened next, finally, that dreadful Sabbath day for the disciples was passed. That Saturday after the burial must have been the darkest day these disciples had ever experienced, a day in which their future was grim and foreboding. Would they, as Jesus' followers, be the next to be crucified? 
The disciples, crushed in spirit, tried to live through that dark Saturday with no hope for the future and no understanding of the resurrection that was to come, despite the fact that Jesus had told them many times what was going to happen. Still in that depressed state, a number of women who had faithfully followed Jesus got up early in the morning and now that the Sabbath has passed, they were able to go shopping and for the spices they would need to take to anoint the body. We could jokingly call them the original Spice Girls, but we won't, not today. There was no time on Friday to properly prepare Jesus' body, so they hurried out now to complete the task. Jewish bodies were not um, embalmed as were the Egyptians, but a large amount of aromatic spice was placed on and around the body to diffuse the dreadful smell of decomposition. Joseph and the women who provided access obviously had not grasped the significance of Jesus' words or anticipated his resurrection. They thought they were going to deal with a dead body. <laughs> they were in for a shock. The worry they had as they walked along concerning moving the huge stone was gone. Matthew tells us that God had sent an angel and rolled back the stone. You know, many today could testify that something like that when instead of endlessly worrying about some particular problem, they prayed earnestly about it and found to their surprise and delight that the problem had disappeared and God had answered their prayer. The second shock for these women came when they got game enough to look inside the tomb. And there they found to their amazement that Jesus' body was gone. Although the grave clothes still appeared to be there as though they were wrapped around the body and they got a further shock when they saw a, a, a angelic figure who told them the incredible news that Jesus had risen from the dead the very Jesus he said that you saw crucified Having assured them that Jesus had risen from the dead, he gave them their marching orders and assignment to do. Go now and tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as, you to as he told you before he died. These words resemble the command Jesus gave to all his followers, including us, before he ascended back to heaven. Go and make disciples of all nations. The women responded immediately to the instructions, uh, instructions they were given. And Mark records they fled from the tomb trembling and bewildered. The words are even stronger in the Greek. They taught tromos of trauma and ecstasis of ecstasy. So there was a mixed feeling of mixed feelings of ecstasy and fear of the trauma they had been. They ran quickly to tell the disciples as the angel had instructed them. But we responded so quickly to make disciples of all nations. How their lives changed after that. The disciples' first reaction was fear, abject fear. It was only a little while later that Peter stood boldly for a crowd of thousands of people and fears as he proclaimed. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honour in heaven,
at God's right hand. For the last 2,000 years, skeptics have tried to destroy and explain away the resurrection story with coming up with many and varied alternatives, but none of them, not one, has proved to be realistic. Sir Lionel Luck, who once listed in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's most successful liar, uh, lawyer, sorry, most successful lawyer, records, I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof that leads no room for doubt. And he's a man who's used to examining evidence. As believers, we couldn't agree more and accept without reservation that Jesus rose from the dead. Regardless, many people today decide to reject or choose to ignore the life-changing truth of the resurrection. Some just don't want to believe. Maybe it's because this is one miracle that demands a personal decision about who Jesus is. Tom Wright's friend, Bishop Tom Wright, was given one of his second books on the resurrection. And he, the friend wrote back, Tom, you make a very convincing place, a case, but I simply choose to believe that there must be another explanation, even though I can't imagine what that would have been. He doesn't want to believe. Other people today think the whole thing is irrelevant. How can the life and death of someone 2,000 years ago, whoever he was, help me in the here and now and change my life? I don't get it. And so they ignore it. To millions, this is an outdated, legendary concept and belief system with little relevance to the 21st century. Nothing could be further than the truth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in the history of the world. It's unprecedented that anyone could rise from the dead just as he promised he was going to do, then offer that new life and immortality to all who would follow him. And that includes us. If that doesn't get you excited, then nothing will. We are having problems there. Sometimes the vision, sometimes life works. We'll move over that one. You want to bring it up the other way? It was working behind me. Well, it's not working up here. Let's go back again and see if we can get it. Not that far back. <laughs> Technology is the bane of my existence. We'll go on, forget it. Okay. It's about the reaction of people in those days and how excited they got when they saw Jesus. But are you excited? Or is it just another story? Just something you've heard for years and years and years. But what does it mean to you today, to you and to me? How can it change our life? Well, the resurrection, as you see up there, offers salvation to all who believe. And that's the very important part. In Romans, we read that God proved by a powerful act that Jesus, our Lord, is the Son of God because he was raised from the dead. 
And therefore, as the Son of God, he has the authority, and especially the Son of God who's made the ultimate sacrifice for sin, he has the right and authority to offer to all people that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that's a life-changing concept, a life that goes on forever. If people choose to ignore that or consider it rubbish, then literally it's on their own head. They're also refusing to believe that the book of Hebrews explicitly says each person is destined to die once and after that comes the judgment. I know this sort of judgment may not be a popular thing to say in the 21st century, but it's what the Bible teaches and it will happen. And who will be the judge? You find that in Acts. For he has set a day, God has set a day, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. No matter what skeptics say, lives of people who believe are still being transformed every day by the power of the resurrection and will continue to be until God finally says, time's up. Then the resurrection comforts those who feel forgotten and alone. No doubt the disciples felt abandoned and forgotten by God at that time. All their hopes and dreams seemed shattered and they locked themselves away in fear of the Jews. But God had not forgotten anyone. And he had not abandoned his followers or his plan. Some of his last words to his disciples before he sent it back to heaven was, Surely I am with you, even to the end of the age. Sometime before the events of the last few days, Jesus had prepared his disciples by telling them, I am going to go away. But then he comforted them and he promised, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, God's Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him because he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you alone like orphans. I will come back to you. You know, sometimes things happen that look like disaster or defeat in our lives too. Family breakdowns, diagnosed with cancer, made redundant at work, loss of a loved one and so on and so forth. It can seem like God has forgotten all about us. But God promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is with you and with us through all the crippling disasters that come. And though they may not always resolve the way we would like them to, God can use them to bring about victory in our lives as the Holy Spirit who dwells within us leads and guides us to new things he has planned for us in our lives. Then the resurrection reassures those who have failed. And I don't need to say much about this as Taylor covered it so well two weeks ago. We know that Peter was a shattered man thinking Jesus could never forgive him for denying him. When Peter realised he had failed Jesus, it broke his heart. Let me ask you, have you ever failed God? I know I have. Have you sinned against him? And yes, I have. Have you denied that you belonged to him when you did something you knew was wrong? Have you failed God when you had an opportunity to speak up for him and you didn't? 
If, like me, you have, then the resurrection can turn our lives around also because the resurrection gives us power to accept the promise in John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I love the way it's written in Micah where it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot and cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Remember that song we sing, His mercy is more? Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, but his mercy is more. That's a wonderful thing. And then the resurrection gives us a purpose for living. Is your purpose living to set everything up to produce a good life for yourself and your family? Well, great as that aspiration might be, for someone who has been changed by the power of Jesus' resurrection, God has a lot more in store for you. The disciples found that after seeing and discussing the future with the resurrected Lord, and later he commissioned them to go out to live for him and work for him. And in 1 Corinthians, we're told you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which are God's. The shorter catechism of the Westminster Confession, written in the 1600s, teaches us that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So how do we glorify God? By worshipping him, recognising that he has a prior claim on our lives and living in a way that draws attention to God rather than us. Striving to live like that is a great purpose for living. Barry will know it, our Kingston Men's Fellowship, we often sing this song, we have a reason for living, we have a purpose in mind. He is the Christ who dwells in us, he has control of our lives. You know, I have found this book helpful for thinking young people seeking to understand and also confirm their own worldview and really wanting to know the answer to those three important questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where do I go when I die? A Christian's perspective about life is very different from those who don't know Christ. We should see life as an opportunity to love others and serve God faithfully. Jesus is our life. With his word to guide us, his spirit to empower us, we can do great things for God and for the people we meet. And finally, the resurrection empowers people who need hope. That could include even some of us. Many people today seem to be devoid of hope, causing widespread depression and mental stress. It's not surprising, considering the state of the world is in right now. Some young people are depressed about what the future holds for them in this world. And no wonder. Facing war and violent unrest around the globe, pandemics, dramatic climate change, and uncertainties of many kinds, it's no wonder people are losing hope. So get excited about what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How blessed we are as believers that we have a sure and certain hope, not, oh, I hope things are going to turn out all right, or I hope things are going to be fine tomorrow. No, 
Not wishful thinking, but ironclad guarantees from God on the authority of the risen Lord. A guarantee of security in this troubled world where in Romans we read, and I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, and we've got lots of them at the moment, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is revealed in Christ Jesus. That's living a life in partnership with God, and that's something that ought to get us excited, not just think, oh well, who cares? And we've got to guarantee that death is not the end. Jesus told his followers, because I live, you too shall live. And he comforted Martha with those now immortal words, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die like everyone else, will live again. That means so much, especially to those of us of my age and older. And we know our lives are fast running out. And many of our con the contemporaries we grew up with have gone already. Jesus' resurrection gives us great confidence and peace as we face the future to know that death is not the end. And then we've got a guarantee of a future in heaven with Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you and take you to be with, always be with me wherever I am. At the end of last year, I went to Queensland to attend the funeral of my 103-year-old mother-in-law. And I'll never forget a short video the family played at the service. The dear lady lay there with broken bones from a fall that could never be healed due to her age, her sight and hearing very poor. She just lay on her back with her eyes closed. Someone had just read to her Psalm 23. And I can hear now her faltering voice saying her last words. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Isn't that something to get excited about? The resurrection of Jesus Christ was one of the most momentous events in history. By rising from the dead and returning to the position of power at the right hand of God the Father, Jesus fulfilled a vital part of God's rescue plan for humanity that is of the utmost importance to the life and the future of every human being, whether they believe it or not. Oh, may it excite us today, as it did the Apostle Paul, even though he was in prison, wrote, I want to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we're talking to a living God, that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that makes so much difference to us. Help us to grasp the significance of it for us today and rejoice in what Jesus has done.
Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for our risen Lord in his own worthy name. Amen.